This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. Wednesday, October 12th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Biden administration's defense budget request is out. It's at $773 billion, a record if you look at it one way, like the amount of money. What Congress does is they usually add 20-something billion to this. So it's going to be an over $800 billion defense budget. Now, the classic thing to say, and not entirely untrue, is, wow, that's a lot, you know, since a billion is a thousand million and we got about... 330 million of us in this country, we're talking about more than 2,000 per man, woman, and child to fund the defense budget. As Peter Jewell, who uh, works with the American Progress Think Tank and writes for a liberal patriot notes, however, this amount of money, though large, is 3% of gross domestic product, which is actually really low by historical standards. And it's only what the country spent on the military in 1997, which is the depth of the Cold War, the height of the end of the Cold War, or any before 9-11, after the Cold War, when we felt like we had to spend very little. And I know it is true, as I think about the defense budget, I know it is true that there is a lot of waste. I know there really is a military-industrial complex, and I know the politics of defense are really ugly in that you just can't properly eliminate a base or a project because they're spread throughout congressional districts, and they're just, it's not the most functional way we could spend 2,000-some-odd dollars per man, woman, and child. But the thing is... I think it's a good expenditure, and I've been thinking this more and more often this year than I have in any other years in my lifetime. I can't think of another time when the defense budget has been more justified than it is now. That makes sense. My lifetime started during the Vietnam War, which was a waste of money and a terrible expenditure plus policy decision. And then you go into two wars of choice in Iraq a doomed-to-fail war in Afghanistan, and what were we really getting for our spending? And it is true, also, that the United States spends as much on its military budget as the next nine countries combined. But ask yourselves, would you feel better if China doubled its defense spending to blow that statistic and probably a lot of Taiwanese people out of the water? I don't think we would. Would we feel better if Russia weren't spending $78 billion on their defense budget, but 178? I don't know where they'd get it, but it would be really bad for the rest of the world. And of course, we're going to spend more on our defense budget. We pay American soldiers, sailors, and airmen American wages. The Chinese don't. The Russians don't. They essentially conscript them. So yes, spending will be higher. And it is also the case that I would like, and when I talk to very smart people, military men and women, 
Well, actually, I got to admit, it's mostly men. Guys who you've seen on MSNBC as military experts, and they will say, oh, yeah, our military spending's out of control. It would be great if we could bring it down by a third or a half or lop a couple sides off the Pentagon. The thing is, we don't know which third or a half. It's like the old saw about advertising. You waste half your money. You just don't know which half. I also think that if we brought military spending down, I don't know, make the expenditure $1,500 per man, woman, and child, the extra $1,000 or so wouldn't be the thousand we'd most want to save. We might cut something like the HIMARS program, which when you think about it is the greatest humanitarian expenditure of any government program in our lifetimes. It seems weird to say that about weaponry, but by shipping them to the Ukrainians and by the Ukrainians repelling the Russians, we are ultimately saving more lives to say nothing of the cause of things like freedom and democracy and anti-totalitarianism. But we are actually forestalling refugee camps and genocide and widespread slaughter in a way that you just pray we could have when it comes to the Uyghurs or the Rohingya or even the Hutu in Rwanda. So it's fair to have all these feelings and to raise all these questions about our admittedly bloated budget for the Pentagon. And yet at the same time, compared to All else we do spend on, the way spending actually works, as in it's never perfect, there's always bloat and fraud with everything we spend on, on what the spending gives us, it gives us allies. Every war that the United States has fought since 1950, we've turned all of our opponents into allies, right? It's actually happened with Iraq. And, you know, de facto with Vietnam. So we have no enemies that we once fought a war against. And that is because after war, we go in with copious amounts of defense spending and take over the defense commitments of Germany or Japan. And that's one reason why they're no longer our enemies. So I'm not here to praise the Osprey program that can't quite seem to land its planes without crashing. I'm not here to tell you that the issue of sexual assault in the military is an issue that's anywhere close to on its way to being solved. And I'm not here to deny the military industrial complex, but in the real world full of nasty actors and greedy contractors, I think more than I ever have before that the Pentagon budget is close to what we can call justified. On the show today, in the spiel, I'll talk about the LA City Council scandal, and we'll get beyond the slurs, the horrible slurs that were uttered, and discuss the content of what was being debated and chewed over. Sharp elbows, but bad politics? Oh, that's the kind of rhetorical question that'll have an answer in the spiel. But first, J. Bradford DeLong is one of the most influential economists today. That's not necessarily a good thing. A lot of influential economists have steered us down a bad road, but not Brad DeLong. He's quite sharp and he thinks a lot about the road, the destination. In fact, it's reflected in his new book, Slouching Towards Utopia, an economic history of the 20th century. Brad DeLong is a polymath, of course, meaning He's learned much, but he's also a mathy Paul, math being short for Mathenaean, I believe, and it means learned. So to me, a mathy Paul is someone who hasn't just learned much, but he's learned a lot from poly many sources. And he grabs all these strands and educates us in what he deems a grand theory. He also acknowledges when you write a big 600-page book, you need to have a grand theory. But you'll enjoy spending time as I did with Brad DeLong up next. 
Jay Bradford DeLong has said that if all goes well, his new book, Slouching Towards Utopia, might become a treasure for all time. I hope so, because its subject matter is to contemplate the treasuries of the world and individuals throughout time. The subtitle of this book is An Economic History of the 20th Century. The subtitle is immediately gainsayed by the thesis, which goes 30 years before the 20th century and very far back, and 10 years after and a bit into the future. Jay Bradford DeLong, one of the most prominent and important economists. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you for coming on. It's my great pleasure, but it is self-interested. You do know that I do have to sell books, right? And this is one of the very best ways to do so. So, yes. So it's both pleasurable. Well, I, this is probably the best sort of, of economic activity, one that we convince ourselves is pleasurable, but is also an obligation. Mm -hmm. The book posits, and I think is quite convincing, that the mark, the demarcation of modernity, or at least the rocket engine of growth, was not the dawn of the Age of Enlightenment, not the dawn, was not when looms started being installed in Lowell, Massachusetts. It took a while. It was mm -hmm. 1870, specific year, when things really started going kaboom. How'd you come to that conclusion? Um, by simply looking at numbers. And by simply looking at numbers worldwide as opposed to looking at what's going on in very small and very atypical industrial districts. You know, that you can, you can claim that the actual process really gets started long, long before, and you fight back and forth about whether and what might have derailed it. Um, some people going all the way back to the investiture controversy when the German emperor, Henry IV, has to stand in the snow outside the castle where the pope is sleeping and beg for forgiveness, etc., etc. But it's only in 1870 that everything comes into place, and once that happens, then all of a sudden, each year you have between four and five times as many inventions and innovations as you had had during the Industrial Revolution century, which was itself a marvelous thing compared to what had gone forward. And it was that sudden jump up in the speed at which humanity's technological competence was growing. That, I think, was the big watershed boundary crossing. That's the big divide. So if you look at when the Industrial Revolution started and you uh, track it for about 100 years. It was the case that material circumstance was improving, but just barely. Am I getting that right? I would say just barely. You know, I'd say, you know, I, you know, half a percentage per year, if you take a long enough van viewpoint, isn't, you know, chopped liver. Um, half a percent per year is something that is going to double over 140 years, you know, if you can wait that long. But 140 years is much longer than people's lifetimes in an age when average lifetime was about 35. And anyway, most of technological progress before 1870 was um, eaten up by faster growth of population, simply because people back then were so poor. Um, and, you know, if you're poor, if it's a pre-modern society, if you reach the age of 50 and don't have a surviving son then you're likely to be in real trouble. You know, who's going to look after for you? Who's going to advocate for you? And so you don't have the we should only have one or two children kind of attitude you have today back before 1870. And so, yes, 
technology is growing, but it's growing slowly, and income levels aren't growing much at all. After 1870, everything is boo's boom. Before 1870, there's no chance humanity is going to be able to bake a sufficiently large economic pie for everyone to have enough. After 1870, it's quite clear that the time when we'll be able to bake such a sufficiently large economic pie is coming and is coming pretty rapidly. And the innovations around 1870 that were so important were the corporation and the laboratory, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are lots of other things that were important, too. You can go all the way back to coinage and so forth. But you needed all of the pieces of the institutional complex in order to produce our 2% per year rate of growth of our technological power, which is then deployed and diffused throughout the world economy so people can actually make use of it. And you don't get all of the components there. And if any of them are missing, it doesn't work until 1870. So of these two institutions, it seems to me that they're different. They're slightly different. The corporation is chartered and it's written down and we understand the rules of it. Whereas the laboratory seem, I, I don't know that it was so structured and formalized, was it? No, it's definitely not structured and formalized. But the laboratory, it is a way of rationalizing and routinizing the process of discovery and development of technologies. As to before, when some guy discovers something, um, but then has no real way to develop it into something useful in the economy. Um, Or somebody develops something, but then there's no one, no group of people to support him or her and to work out the bugs and the kinks and so forth. So that someone will have one good idea and then spend the rest of their life trying to find financing, workers, markets, publicists, and so forth to actually make it useful. As opposed to someone who is good at discovery or good at development, discovering and developing, then handing it off and setting it off to sending it off to someone else. The example I use, the canonical example of the book, of course, is Nikola Tesla, who's not only a fascinating character, but who is a mad genius who single-handedly pushed forward the entire electricity sector, which became one-tenth of our economy by a decade, you know, all by himself. um, That is 20% progress in one-tenth of the economy. That's 2% of progress for, um, you know, that's fully one one-hundred-and-fiftieth of the economic growth all of humanity has had since 1870 due to this one guy. Yeah. Um, And yet he would have been absolutely useless in any situation other than one in which George Westinghouse had the Westinghouse Corporation to take his ideas and products and deploy them, and in which Westinghouse had the industrial research lab so he could put Tesla in it to think up mad thoughts and have other people decide which ones were any good or not. Right. And also uh, to be quarantined and separated from anyone whose Tesla's charms and social skills (laughs) might come into play to try to convince to fund him since he had none. (laughs) Someone who makes Elon Musk look like Albert Schweitzer in terms of his ability right, to get along with others and be benevolent. It is hysterical to me that both companies that have founded, that have taken the name of Tesla and then Nikola are... Let us say, in one case, extremely successful and controversial, yes. and in another yes. case, being currently sued out of existence for lying, which yes. are actually yes. a little bit uh, aspects of Nikola Tesla's personality. Tesla-like, yes. Tesla-like, yes. <laughs> so we now live, and all of these innovations uh, gave us 
2.1% economic growth a year, which, um, you know, compared in the post-World War II era seems low. Now we'd certainly take it. It is an average over years. And this means there's essentially a doubling of the economy every 33 years. Mm-hmm. So when I, as a 50-year-old, look back to 1979, so all of my, almost all of my lifetime, maybe not the last uh, 10 12 years. So so let's start from when I was born. From when I was born, 1971, up until a, a, around 2010, I could expect to live in a world that would explode with growth and innovation. And yes. this is how it had been for everyone who was alive when I was, a, right. when I was yes. born, pretty much. Yes. My children, born in 2007 and 2008, you're saying will have not just slightly, but a fundamentally different experience of the world and change during their lifetimes? That's what it looks like now, right? That um, that in terms of the speed of technological progress we've had since 2006 worldwide, it looks like less than half of what we were used to from 1870 on. Um, for complicated reasons, some of which are that the problem has become genuinely harder yeah, that the low-hanging fruit has been picked. And even though we have massive amounts of STEM talent and massive amounts of computer power to aid them, the problems are still hard. Some because in the age of the neoliberal turn that um, governments now find themselves devoting a lot less to research and development. And a lot of private sector corporations that used to have large blue sky industrial research labs, those have been made to satisfy a short-term financial profitability test. You know, the dominance of Jack Welch of GE and so forth. Um, And so a lot of the social effort at pushing technology forward that we had in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and so forth is no longer really out there. You know, and what there is, well, it does seem as though there are too few people involved in research and development to figure out how to make better mousetraps. And too many people figuring out how to scare old people to addict them to screens so they can then be, with their eyeballs glued to screens, they can then be sold overpriced um, crypto assets and fake diabetes cures um, that Mm -hmm. we're not utilizing our current wealth well for technological progress. Before 1870, economic growth was so slow that your life was probably a lot like that of your grandparents. Well, since 1870, it's been, that's simply not been the case on average. Very rare is the person whose life is a lot like that of even their parents. You know, I'm getting old now, so my father, as a relatively young lawyer, is now really two generations ago. Mm-hmm. But him in his world of handwritten copies and typing pools and dictaphones and frantic trips to the library to shepherdize cases and so forth. You know, the day-to-day work life of a knowledge worker 50 years ago was incredibly different. Then here I am with the assembled Internet Library of Humanity on the screen to my left with the podcast hosts in the screen to the middle and off to the screen to the right, assorted notes and so forth, and my ability to pull up a huge amount of knowledge to inform my next sentence, um, almost fast enough for it to be of great use. Um, That's not likely to characterize the next century unless we get another boost, which we might well, but at the moment it's not looking like that. It's looking like our technology is going to move forward more slowly. So the 12 years since 2010 has not been 
it's not been like uh, a third of one of these periods where we saw a gigant a gigantic doubling, even in what even even in the amount of technology that my kids have had to grapple with or deal with. It might seem amazing to us, but they're really kind of Im- incremental um, and maybe superficial. Uh, advances, unlike the really fundamental ones of the past. Yeah, although it may well change your experience, the experience of your life a lot. You know, yeah. like, you know, 15 years ago, there were no iPhones. There were some people who were addicted to their Blackberries, but they were kind of a weird and stray, they're kind of a weird and strange group. And a generation before that, there were some people who were addicted to their pagers, um, but they were also a weird um, and somewhat strange group. Well, now everyone has a smartphone and many people are on TikTok. Um, so yeah, there are qualitative changes in styles of life and there's the question of how much this matters. You know, um, and there are sectors in which we're pushing forward at a remarkable pace, you know, information technology and biotechnology. But from 1870 to 2010, it was repeated tsunamis, one after the other, every generation. And it looks like it's no longer that. Yeah. You know, plus, now we're having to scramble um, with the fact that global warming's about to hit us. And, you know, nuclear proliferation may hit us at any moment. Um, plus, there's the revival of what you know, the late Madeleine Albright called fascism, and who am I to argue with her? Um, three big civilization-shaking problems that um, people did not really have to deal with problems of that magnitude after, at least not after 1945. Right. I would argue, you know, people in Cambodia did and Definitely. people who were Definitely. living under uh, uh, under Mao did and certainly Definitely. many, many people did. Um, yes. From the Russo-Japanese War to the Crimean to the mustard gases of World War One to the Holocaust, it's not as if the period of great exponential growth didn't have its headwinds. I would actually—I don't know—I don't know if I'd exactly make the trade of the problem of global warming for the problem of Hitler, but it's right. at least a discussion. It's at least a discussion to have. It's a discu- yeah. big discussion to have. So uh, you did also mention, you know, fake diabetes cures, which is interesting to me because it strikes me that the way to cure diabetes is to go back to a pre-1870 lifestyle. The age of abundance comes with it uh, a certain set of problems. And the age of scarcity had a certain set of, you want to look at it, solutions to that, those problems. I would rather have abundance than die relatively young. Yes, but not not from diabetes. Not from diabetes, no. So yes, so we're cursed with our blessings to some extent, but we still want our blessings. Another question, that, though, that I have is, as you map out that we've lived in an era, a century-plus era with great advances and a doubling of income, right. that is what the West has experienced, and China in recent years began to catch up. Couldn't you argue that for the West, we'll see a diminution in economic growth, but the next century will be characterized by this really hitting in a real way India or Indonesia yes. or yes. more yes. so even in China? Yes, 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 yes. Yes, very much so. It may well be the case that the world of 2100 is not nearly as much richer than the world of 2000 as 2000 is compared to 1900, but that the distribution is so much better that the impact on human life 
right. is going to be massively more. But look, during the long 20th century, we solved the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie that everyone could have enough. Uh, but then there are the problems of slicing and tasting the pie, you know, of equitably distributing what we're producing and then utilizing it properly so that people feel safe and secure and live lives in which they are healthy um, and happy. And, you know, we people back before 1870, they thought that baking a big enough pie was going to be the big problem. And once you'd baked a big enough pie, then, you know, since there was potentially enough for everyone slicing and distributing it would be relatively easily, right? After all, most of the bad things about human history before 1870 come because there isn't enough. And so you have to have an elite of thugs with spears, with tame accountants, bureaucrats, and propagandists um, busily figuring out how to grab enough for themselves. And with sufficiently advanced technology, the need to run that force and fraud grift on humanity is kind of gone. And so you bake the pie and then you slice and you taste it easy. Yet, indeed, right now we have a world in which famine, drought, flood and hunger are still things in which the monsoon is 300 miles away from where it's supposed to be, which is causing big problems in Asia right now. Plus one in which killer robots stalk the skies above Syria and Ukraine. That people before 1870 would have been enormously impressed and you know, jaw-dropping at how rich we are, and yet also, I think, somewhat contemptuous of us for how badly we've managed to utilize our wealth to create a truly human world. Mm. Could it be argued that for just our country, for the United States, the pie is sufficient, or at least we need to convince ourselves that the pie is sufficient because we're not going to be uh, making more than, you know, 0.5% of a pie each year. And that if things were distributed more fairly and equitably, we would deliver sufficiently utopian lives, at least for Americans. Um, and then our biggest, our biggest problem in that case would be psychological. Yeah, I would, I would like to have a jet copter out and back perched on top of the hot tub that I could get into. And so cruise on down in 45 minutes to my cousin Phil's place in Malibu on the beach. Mm -hmm. I could stand being somewhat richer than I am now. I know, but there's that quote in your book about our wants becoming, our needs becoming yes. our wants. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. But there is a sense in that we ought to be able to have that with America as rich as it is, we ought to have a very good society. One in which we don't have Berkeley professors like me living here where I am um, in our houses whose values have been artificially inflated by successful nimbyism. While half a mile away, there is a man who lives in a box and we haven't figured out a way to get him the mental health services that he needs. You know, that that's not... Um, do you, have a, do you have a monkey? Do you have a monkey in your house? I, I think I heard a dog. That, what is that? Yes, we actually have the dog. The dog has just appeared. Um, is the dog squeaking a squeak toy? The dog has found a squeak toy. It is now squeaking it. Um, okay. As long as we acknowledge it, we needn't dissuade the dog. But please continue. Yeah. <laughs> yes, in any event. Yeah, but, you know, look at this dog, right? At some point, this dog was on the streets of Fresno. Um, oh, really? Without a microchip. Flea-ridden, tick-ridden, malnourished, underthing. Um, and now this dog, thanks to the Milo Foundation and to us, has a very comfortable suburban life in which getting his calories a day is, you know, um, not a thing he worries about. 
Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet he still is absolutely focused on, can I catch that squirrel? Um, and in fact, he would much rather um, have his breakfast not in a bowl, but in a paper bag, right? You know, he wants again the kind of, I'm the street dog of Fresno will appear. And he will run out and grab it and tear it open and eat it incredibly avidly as if some other bigger dog is about to come and take it away from him. So are you suggesting that in many respects, where the, where the dog with a meta, with the curse of metacognition as well? Yes. We're the dog. Um, yes. Yes. The psychological impact of the psychological and I think the cultural memory of who we were, you know, very much constrains, um, who we are. And is in fact the thing that leaves me awake at night wondering, am I making enough money so that my children will have all the options that I think they deserve? The name of the new book, the analysis of the widening gyro, is Slouching Towards Utopia, an Economic History of the 20th Century. Jay Bradford DeLong, thank you so much. You are very welcome. And now the spiel. The following people and parties called for the resignation of three Los Angeles city council members caught on tape disparaging the race, ethnicities, and masculinity of their fellow council members and their children. They are the L.A. Times Mayor Eric Garcetti, both candidates for L.A. Mayor President Joe Biden, Maxine Waters, Adam Schiff, every Democratic member of the congressional delegation that I'm aware of, every single other member of the L.A. City Council, including Heather Hutt, of whom this was said on the leaked recording. The one who will support us is Heather Hutt. Yes. I like Heather Hutt. Hutt will no longer support them. The abandonment of these three officials demonstrates the fact that when a slur squall presents itself, everyone runs for cover. Within the Democratic Party, racist language or sentiments are simply not countenanced, nor is sexual harassment. Republicans often do dig in, playing the media is out to get us card, but a transgressor will have no friends or defenders within Democratic circles if they're guilty of racial insensitivity. Politics is a harsh business, and even if you're a mentor, mentee, blood brother or sister to a figure beset by a maelstrom, you gotta cut ties. U.S. Senator Alex Padilla is a lifelong friend of former council president Nuri Martinez. They went to high school together. He was among those calling for her resignation. It's all downside for any Democrat who aspires to higher office. And Martinez, De Leon, and Padilla we're not operating under a different impression. In fact, it is the acknowledgement of politics as a sharp-elbowed game that informs most of their discussion caught on tape. You may have heard the three or four most offensive utterances, but the other hour and 20 minutes is spent trying to put preferred candidates in different districts and consolidate the power of the Latino caucus, of which these three are three-quarters of the members on the 15-member city council. It's not to say they were engaged in good governance or even adhering to the spirit of progressive values of representation. On Monday, Fernando Guerra, political scientist at Loyola Marymount University, was on the public radio program AirTalk. The idea that, uh, that uh, Angelinos, that only Los Angeles uh, treats political power this way is absolutely wrong. It's 
throughout all of America and throughout all of America, when they went through the redistricting process, there were limited number of seats, limited amount of resources, and they all fought this way. And by law, you must take race into consideration and have a discussion about race. Of course, not in that manner, but the point is valid. All politics are local and all redistricting politics are local, brutal, and racial, and if not racial, then tribal. As for the specifics of Los Angeles, there, redistricting is overseen by a commission that studies and advises and makes recommendation. The commission fancies itself independent. Only the city council has input as to who is on the commission, and they are the ones who decide whether to adopt the maps put forth by the commission. So the city council, all the city council, knows that redistricting is at the discretion of the councilors. As such, you can hear Martinez, De Leon, and Cedilla, not loftily, not inspiringly, but earnestly discussing their goal of getting more Hispanic representation in this nearly majority Hispanic city. The public arguments they have made many times over the years certainly would not include slurs or laughing at fellow council members, but the basic idea we need to do what we can within the law to increase representation for our people is something they've publicly avowed over and over, and it's also the main topic of discussion on these tapes. 25 years ago, the thing for us is to exercise our power. Exactly. To get together, if we are, exercise our power. You're right, there's three seats. If you figure out the valley, the seats on this corridor, historic African-American, which I could support one, maybe two, but those are not the seats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get Fernando Guerra in here. There's 57 out of 60 seats that African Americans are in are Latino seats. From the Comptons to the Gardenas to the. You get Inglewood probably. Oh, Inglewood, 100%. Mm-hmm. Right? In the city, and what's current at? 76%? 86. 86. Fucking oh my central. God, you can't throw a rock and not hit a Mexican. South Central. 86. In fact, one of the utterances that's considered a slur was not really a slur. It wasn't the most sensitive phrasing, but the three were talking about the representative of the L.A. section known as Koreatown. And Martinez responded to De Leon bringing up Koreatown, or as he called it, K-Town. Yeah, let's go K-Town. Yes, I see a lot of little short, dark people. Yeah, put over hawking Koreans. What they're saying is, this is supposed to be Koreatown, but it's really Latino town, specifically Oaxacans, who the members caught on tape are saying need a Latino representative to champion their interests. They're not mocking small brown people. I mean, maybe they are, but not for being Latino or for being smaller brown. They're pointing out that these people don't seem to them to be Korean, which is to say these people, the Oaxacans, are our people. They are saying it insensitively, of course. The tenor of the conversation and the substance was criticized by council member Nithya Raman, who is the current representative of Koreatown. She is not Latina. She is not Korean. And according to Cedillo Martinez and De Leon, she is insufficiently loyal to the three of them. Raman made this point on AirTalk on KPCC. What we heard on those con- in that conversation was not a conversation that was made in good faith about advancing Latino power. 
The faith might not have been good, the knuckles may have been bare, but the concerns are real. And anyone could hear it who listened to the recording, all the recording. These were three council members who were earnestly, bluntly, and offensively attempting to get their people more representation and to get themselves more power. But that's not a downside of politics. That is politics. Aside for calls of resignation, there is another call that will have more long-lasting effect. And that is one that doesn't strip the council of whatever Latino representation it does have if three of their four current Hispanic members were to resign. The idea is real redistricting reform with teeth. So there's no point to getting into a closed room to try to carve up the city for political gain and tempting yourself by saying nasty things about six-year-olds. And political gain isn't a dirty word or a dirty phrase. It doesn't have to be personal gain. It needn't be racist. can actually advance the interests of voters. None of that was going on in the dirty old system, a system that it should be pointed out will still be in place even if these particular people are pushed out. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pasca, CEO of Peachfish Productions, like Joel and Corey, have all seen The Wizard of Oz. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. 